So today, uh, we finish up this look in the Psalms with the most well-known psalm uh, in Scripture, probably the most well-known chapter in the entire Bible, Psalm 23. This psalm is so well-known that you may find it uh, difficult to even uh, kind of examine. Uh, we, we, we've, we've recited it so many times over the years, and uh, most of us know it by heart. Uh, in fact, I found it to be the case with me as well. I mean, after reading it this week, I almost felt like, well, uh, it's better to not even preach on it and just read it and uh, bask in its beauty and comfort. But, uh, but I will be preaching on it this morning, so if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it up, and, and even though we know it so well, to, to look at it closely. And if you don't have a Bible with you but would like to use one this morning, you can find the Bibles uh, in the seats in front of you, underneath, and the text, Psalm 23, will be on page 458 of that Bible. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23 is what scholars call a a psalm of trust or a psalm of confidence. Trust or confidence in the Lord. There are psalms, uh, many, in fact, probably the the bulk of the psalms are psalms of what we call lament, where the the psalmist is uh, really crying out to the Lord for help. And then we have, on the other end, psalms of praise, which really hardly delve into any kind of trouble or or toil and and are really just lifting the Lord up in praise. Psalms of confidence or or psalms of trust are kind of in the middle. Uh, What you have here in Psalm 23 is an acknowledgement of trial, an acknowledgement even of what he calls the valley of the shadow of death. But in the midst of trials and and, and trying circumstances and sorrows or whatever this psalmist, in this case David, is dealing with, Really, the flavor of the psalm is not one of lament, but one of trusting God, trusting the one he calls his shepherd. Psalm 23 really is, the bulk of it is about the Lord as David's shepherd. We see this in verses 1 through 4. But what's interesting is that uh, the metaphor shifts slightly, uh, beginning at verse 5. David begins, verses 1 through 4, speaking of the Lord as David's shepherd, and then he shifts there in verse 5 to speaking with, it's a a totally different vision now, and now rather than being a sheep in the the hills of Judea, he's now uh, a guest in someone's home, and uh, he has the Lord as his host. 
welcoming him to his table. But if you look at verse 1, he begins by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, of all people, David would know what a shepherd is. It's what David is when we first meet him. And, and David would, uh, as he's writing these words, would, would have intimate and, and, and exhaustive, in a sense, knowledge of, of what a shepherd's task is and, and what the sheep are like and, and how a shepherd lives and what he has to do. And, and he would know that to be a good shepherd, a, a, a shepherd needs to, to know his sheep he needs to call his sheep by name. He, he needs to lead his sheep. He needs to make them go certain directions and, and go away from other directions. He needs to know where the, the green pastures are. He needs to know where the, the places of water are. He needs to be able to protect his sheep from enemies, from uh, lions and bears, as, as David talks about, or from dumb decisions that they may make. Uh, and correct them and discipline them. He needs to, if need be, give his life for the sheep to protect them. And he begins this psalm really with an incredible statement. He says, the Lord, or again, as I've mentioned before, Yahweh, when you see Lord in all capitals, uh, that is God's divine name, Yahweh. And he says that the Lord, or Yahweh, is my shepherd. Now, the reason that's so incredible and, and hard to fathom is because when God describes himself, when, when he states his name and then kind of describes what that name means, we see this in Exodus chapter 3. Moses was keeping the flock. Moses was a shepherd. Uh, so we see that theme there. And as you know the story, he sees a burning bush and he turns aside to see why this bush that is burning is not being consumed by the flame. And when he walks near the bush, uh, God calls out to him from the bush and says, don't come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. So right away we see that this God is a holy God. Moses isn't even allowed to come near him. He must take his sandals off because even the ground around which this burning bush sits is holy. And he says, look, I am the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he says, look, I'm going to send you into Egypt and I will rescue my people from slavery. He explains that he is the sovereign one, the God who can easily rescue his people from the hand of even the greatest nation on earth at that time. And Moses asks a question. He says, look, if I go to my people and they ask me, what is his name? What is the name of this God who sent, me, uh, sent you to us? God answers Moses and he says, tell them, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This is my name forever. So when God defines, in a sense, what his name means, he defines it as the self-existent one. He defines himself as the self-sustaining one. There is nothing else that we know of that is either self-existent or self-sustaining. We could all vanish tomorrow and God would go on just fine. 
In fact, the entire universe could implode tomorrow and God would be fine. Everything else in existence is sustained and is, exists by his power. But when Moses says, what does Yahweh mean? Who are you? He says, I am. I exist. I am the self-sustaining one. And so, when David begins the psalm and says, Yahweh is, you would expect him to say, perhaps Yahweh is my king. David is, well, we don't know when David wrote this, but maybe he wrote this after he was the earthly king of Israel. But maybe you would expect David to say something like that, Yahweh. This one who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush is my sovereign one, or, or he is my God, he is my king, he's, he's my, he is the all-consuming fire. But he doesn't say that. He says, Yahweh is my shepherd. And that is an unbelievable statement. Because in the ancient Near East, shepherds were in the lowliest position. Shepherds were were really despised. Their work was dirty. It was not very reputable. They themselves were looked down upon. The job was harsh. The job was despised. You may recall when, when Samuel goes to Jesse, because Samuel has been told one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king of Israel, so I want you to go and anoint him. Samuel just looked at the sons and picked the oldest and coolest, right? He said, that must surely be the God's anointed. And God says to Samuel, no, that's not him. And Samuel keeps going down the list and just picking the next most impressive one and the next most impressive one. And God says, I haven't chosen any of those. And Jesse says, well, who in the world is left? And Jesse says, well, there, there is still the youngest. He didn't even call David. <laughs> he said, well, there is still the youngest. He's a shepherd. And God said, that's who I've chosen. Even Jesse, his father, didn't expect him to be the anointed one. And yet, here is David reflecting on Yahweh, reflecting on his God, the God who is the self-existent and self-sustaining one. And when he defines him here in Psalm 23, the term that best describes God in his relationship to David is not king, is not sovereign one, is not ruler, is not lord, but is shepherd. Now, think about that. God has nothing, uh, he has no need of anything from David. I mean, even, even the lowly shepherd, uh, this job that, again, is a despised job, at least gains you something. If you're tending sheep, it might not be a very nice job, but you get something from them in the end. You get wool, or maybe you get milk, and maybe you get cheese, and maybe you get meat. Whatever it is, you get things from the sheep. But in this relationship, God gets nothing. I, what can David provide for him? He gets nothing. David gets everything. And David essentially says that. He says, with, with Yahweh as my shepherd, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want, right? When I was growing up as a kid hearing this verse, I thought it was a strange, almost self-refuting statement. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
Like he's saying, I don't want God to be my shepherd. David is saying in the Hebrew, I lack for nothing. I want for nothing. Now, what could David mean by this? Because he can't possibly mean that he never experiences any kind of physical lack or or emotional or spiritual lack. David isn't, I don't believe, giving some kind of prosperity gospel here, that he has all the riches he could ever want or all of the happiness he could ever want. I mean, all you need to do is read through the Psalms to see that many of the Psalms of Lament were written by David. Just go back to Psalm 142 when when David, we saw a few weeks ago, was hiding in the cave of Adullam. When he was hiding in that cave all alone, he lacked a lot. He he lacked friends and family. He lacked food and provisions. He, He lacked a home. I think what David is saying here is simply this. With God as my shepherd, I have everything I need. Remember, when David was alone in the cave, he wasn't alone. God was there with him. And if you think about it, Christian, if God owns everything, which he does, if you are his, which you are, then in him you have everything. You have everything you need. Think about David as a shepherd. There were probably many times, I would think, especially when he was first learning the job, there were probably many times when when the sheep needed something, but David wasn't able to give it to them right away. Maybe the sheep needed food, but, but David wasn't near a place of food. He, he didn't have access to a, a good pasture. And so David essentially had to make the sheep wait until he found a place. Maybe there were times when the sheep needed water, but David wasn't near a place of water. And so David had to make the sheep wait because he didn't have it in him to provide what they needed. But that's never the case with God's sheep. There is never a time when we need something and God is in heaven wringing his hands because he lacks the ability to give it to us. That can never be the case. God is all-powerful. He is, has everything at his disposal. He has everything in his hands. And therefore, if God's sheep, if you or I, Christian, ever experience any lack or any trial or any hardship, it is never the result of God's weakness or God's lack. If we ever experience any of that, it is due to God's sovereignty. It is due to God's good purposes. It is due to his providence in your life. God owns everything. He can do anything that is in his character to do. And so he is always able to give us whatever we need. There will never be a time, Christian, when you can ever say, I can't get this thing that I need. God can always give it to you. And we see his absolute sovereignty in the next verse. David says, he, Yahweh, makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The sheep uh, don't know what they're doing. The sheep don't know where to go. They don't know how to, how to take care of themselves. They don't know how to fend for themselves. They are completely and utterly dependent upon the shepherd to care for them. 
If you think about it, it's, it's pretty amazing that David here is acknowledging that he's a sheep. Because in even saying that, he's saying he's very, uh, really incapable of knowing what's best for himself. A guy with, with all of his capabilities, all of his talents, all of his skill, in the end says, ultimately, I am a sheep in need of shepherding. And he says, God is my shepherd, and, and because of that, I'm totally dependent on him. It is God, not David, who is the sovereign one. And it is God, not David, who ultimately leads David where he wants him. Notice here, God is making and forcing David to do certain things. Now, when we think about this, when we think about authoritarianism, and we think about uh, sort of authoritarian rulers who make us or force us to do certain things, we're very leery of that kind of thought. And for good reason, because history is littered with human leaders who in their authoritarianism crushed those who were under them and forced those who were under them to do things that were for the, the people under them detriment and their gain. And so when we read that, that God is the sovereign shepherd who is forcing David to do something, we might at first recoil from that. But notice what it is that God is making David to do. God is making David to lie down in green pastures, in pastures of rest and refreshment. God is leading David beside still waters, literally waters of rest. Oftentimes, we don't know what is best for us. David didn't know that he needed these green pastures. David didn't know that he needed these waters of rest. And so he says that God, as his shepherd, forces him to go there. God is not coaching David from a distance. God is not a, you know, the kind of God that, that winds the world and the universe up and then walks away from it and lets things play out in some survival of the fittest. God is intimately guiding his sheep. Christian Yahweh, as your shepherd, is not coaching you from a distance. He has not stepped away. He's not busy over here looking at something else and letting you make bad decisions without him knowing about it. He is guiding you and he is leading you. He is intimately involved in your life. Now, that statement may have just gone straight by you without any thought. Don't let it. Don't lose the awe, Christian that God is your shepherd intimately leading you in your life. You know, we can lose, if we're Christians long enough, if, if we go to church long enough, we can lose the awe of something to do with God. I remember when I first came to Meadowcroft and I was taking my first drive to the church office. It was in October, those of you, you may remember if you were here, it was October, the, the leaves had begun changing, and I took that windy road, Westtown Road, here, and passed by a, a creek on my left, and, and changing leaves all around me, and then I went past Westtown School, and the beautiful grounds there, and I went under a stone bridge, 
And then I went past a little farmland there, and I remember somewhat being in awe of my drive. And I remember just thanking the Lord, Lord, thank you for, for giving me such a beautiful drive to work. I could be stuck in traffic for hours on some highway. And instead, I, I get to gaze at all of this beauty. I think I may have thanked God for that drive about two or three times. And by about the 15th time that I drove to work, I didn't even notice it. I lost sight of the awe that I initially saw. Christian, we need to be in awe of God's care because after all, in verse 3, He not only cares for us physically, but spiritually. Look at what David says. Uh, Yahweh not only leads me where I need to go for rest and for, and, for, uh, and, and for physical refreshment, but He restores my soul. And He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. David is saying that Yahweh does two things for him spiritually. First, he restores his soul. Now, if this was written after his sin with Bathsheba, um, you can only think of, of the joy that David would have felt being restored by God. But even if it's not, that word restores is the same word that, that we saw in Psalm 19 last week where David said the law is, of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Same word. David is saying, it is Yahweh who turns my soul back to him. It is Yahweh who makes me repent. And it is Yahweh, he said, who leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. David is saying that, that any of his holiness, any of his um, uh, striving for, to, for obedience to God, any of his willingness to even want to serve God or, or any his, of his love for God, all of that is due to God. What, what in any of this is David saying he's doing? It's God who regenerates David's heart and soul. It is God who turns David back from sin. It is God who pulls David to himself. It is God who leads David in paths of righteousness. Just like David doesn't know where to go without God's leading in terms of his physical refreshment, so David, if left on his own as someone who is sinful from the time my mother conceived me, if left on his own, would walk away deeply into sin and forget the God who made him. And so it is God who reaches into David's life. And Christian, it's what your God does for you. Your shepherd he cares for you, body and soul. He is the one who called you to repentance. And he is the one even now, as he is intimately involved in your walk, leading you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This valley of the shadow of death Really, it certainly involves death, but, but scholars say you know, it means a valley of deep darkness is a way you can translate it. But, but basically what David, you can expand that out and say, as we walk through all kinds of dark valleys in this life, 
deep, dark valleys, as we walk through all kinds, sickness and trials and addictions and struggles with sin and temptation or war or famine and persecution, uh, God is there. He doesn't abandon us when we go through trials. He is there with us. And David, if you just look at his life, I mean, he, he obviously had, had trials his entire life. He even talks about, again, having to defend the sheep against lions and bears. We know that he went up against Goliath. But what you see in his life after his sin with Bathsheba is that it, it seems like every time he turned around, there was some dark trial in his life. If you just look at David's life after his sin with Bathsheba, it's one thing after another after another. David's child dies. David's other son, his older son, Amnon, sexually assaults and rapes his, uh, his daughter, Tamar. And then her brother Absalom takes revenge and murders David's son, the one who, does, who did that. And then... Absalom, his son, conspires against him and, and starts a war with David for the throne. Absalom, his son, is eventually murdered, and David weeps greatly over the loss of his son. War breaks out with the Philistines. Famine hits for three years, and the Scripture just gives you this one statement, David grew weary. As king, after all of these things, David grew weary, and toward the end of his life, David sins again, and 70,000 men die from pestilence as a direct result of David's sin and God's judgment. As an old man who can, can't even hardly get out of bed, there is a struggle with two of his sons on the throne. That is David's life. Hardship after hardship after hardship, following sin. Is that you this morning, Christian? Maybe some of you are kind of riding high this morning, but some of you aren't. Some of you are, are feeling like you keep getting punched and you can't get out. Well, Christian, there's one valley that we're all going to have to face. It is the valley of the shadow of death. And David recognizes that when he reaches that valley, just like all the others, his shepherd will be there with him. David says, even when I head towards death, I will not fear because you are with me. You never leave me. That Hebrew is emphatic. You are always and ever with me, Lord. Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And notice here, when David starts talking about the shadow of death, when he's talking about these dark valleys that he has to walk, he shifts this perspective. He begins by speaking in third person. And notice he shifts to second person. He's began by speaking about Yahweh, his shepherd, and now he begins praying to Yahweh, his shepherd. And it's especially, I think, key when we see that the context in which this shift takes place is in times of darkest trials and suffering. Christian, isn't that true for us? 
Isn't it true that when we, when we go through times of suffering and trial, that that's oftentimes when God stops being a concept and starts being our shepherd and our friend to whom we turn? God, notice at the end here, is not only David's shepherd, he is also David's host at a great banquet prepared by God. You see here the, the picture shifts. And rather than being a sheep, you see he's now in a house. And he says, in this house, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's, it's like a victory feast. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. All of the pictures of a guest at a banquet. The table is set with delicious food. There is anointing of his head, and his cup is overflowing with wine. And again, the picture is quite staggering. Because David, as the Lord's guest, really brings nothing to the table. You know, you can, you can have uh, people into your home, and hopefully you're doing it solely out of a, a sense of hospitality and wanting to bless people. But, you know, Scripture talks about how oftentimes the rich and the powerful are invited to, to meals and, and even given the place of honor because the host gets something out of it. The Lord is getting nothing out of this. He's inviting David to the feast, and David receives everything as God's guest. And David finishes by speaking about the rest of his life, which is to come, and I don't, again, I don't know when he's writing this, but whatever days might follow, he says in verse 6, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David speaks with ultimate confidence because God is his shepherd. There are two things that will constantly be following him the rest of his life. God's goodness and God's mercy. God's mercy is his, what we've talked about before, his hesed or his covenant faithfulness. The word there that we know as follow is maybe better translated will pursue me all my days. Whatever circumstance David will find himself in for the rest of his life, whatever trial he will face, whatever sin he will, uh, and temptation he will fall to, no matter how far he might try to run away from God, whenever he turns around, he's going to have two things pursuing him to the utmost. God's goodness and God's mercy. Wherever he goes, relentlessly pursuing him, always there, never-ending, all his days, until he reaches the river that he might cross to enter the celestial city. Pilgrim's Progress is a book that I love. It's a book that uh, really helped me when, uh, when my mom was dying of cancer. As I sat by her bed uh, reading that book, uh, it really transformed my view of the Christian walk as, uh, as one of a journey. And I realized as I read that book that that my mom and I are, are really walking in, in some sense the same journey, that we're, we're both headed towards the celestial city. It's just that she reached the goal first. She reached the city first, but, but I'm headed there, and, and one day I'll see her again. Now, the second book in that uh, 
Bunyan wrote two books. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which is the most well-known, and then he wrote a second book about Christian's wife and children also coming to faith and walking that road. Christiana is her name. And I don't think that the whole book is as good as Pilgrim's Progress, but the ending can't be better. The ending of that book says this, when Mr. Standfast had thus set things in order, Mr. Standfast is, is one of the, the, the characters in this, and the time being had come for him to haste him away, he also went down to the river. Now there was a great calm at that time in the river where Mr. Standfast, when he was about halfway in, stood a while. And he said, this river has been a terror to many. Yea, the thoughts of it also have often frightened me. But now I stand easy. My foot is fixed upon that on which the feet of the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant stood when Israel went over Jordan. These waters indeed are to the palate bitter and to the stomach cold. And yet, the thoughts of what I am going to and of the convoy that waits for me on the other side do lie as a glowing coal at my heart. I see myself now at the end of my journey. My toilsome days are ended. And I am going to see that head which was crowned for, with thorns and that face which was spit upon for me. I have formerly lived by hearsay and faith, but now I go where I shall live by sight and shall be with him in whose company I delight. Those are the words of a pilgrim who have been shepherded through this life by Yahweh and who knows at the end of his life that Yahweh will walk him through the river and into the celestial city. Jacob, David's forefather, his life was full of toil as well, full of hardship as well. But one night, as he lay down to rest, as he was fleeing from his brother who wanted to kill him, God came and spoke to him. In a dream, God said, behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. And at the end of his life, you think of his life and, and all of the hardship he had to deal with, thinking that his son Joseph was dead for years and mourning that loss. And when at the end God brought him face to face with his son Joseph, who he thought was lost, and Joseph brought his two boys to him to be blessed. Jacob said this, I never expected to see your face. These were some of his last words. But behold, God has let me see your offspring also. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, he has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Christian, that's you. You have a shepherd. And when Jesus came on the scene, he said, a thousand years after David, 
I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, like David, knew what it took to be a good shepherd. He knew that being a good shepherd meant caring for the sheep, knowing the sheep, calling them by name, leading them where they need to go, and ultimately, if need be, laying down his life for the sheep. And that's what he did. The shepherd job was the lowest of the low, but Jesus stooped even lower. He not only became a shepherd, he went to death on a cross to save the sheep. And he did it for you. Because like his sheep, you were lost. When Jesus came on the scene, tax collectors and sinners, Luke tells us, were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They said, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine and go after the one that is lost? And when he finds the lost one, he lays it on his shoulders. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, he is talking about his greater son. And Christian, Jesus is your good shepherd, not only now, but for the rest of your days and even into eternity. Revelation says this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they said, salvation belongs to our God and to the throne and to the Lamb. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power be to our God forever and ever. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd forever. 